Hey y'all, welcome to God on Tap. And as always, I'm Nika Swalling and we are kicking off First John, which is very exciting. Uh, well, I'm excited. I hope you're excited. But either way, I'm going to say indicatively, it is exciting. And so this is an interesting podcast that I'm recording today because truth be told, I actually already recorded this podcast. And because I'm technologically incompetent, somehow it got like, I, I can't even explain what happened because it's like overly complicated, but it just disappeared. It just disappeared. And I got on Twitter and asked people like, is there any way to recover data files? And people were just like, bummer. <laughs> so I'm recording this episode for the second time, but I think this is a really fun experiment because I thought the first one was pretty good. Not going to lie. I thought I, I thought I nailed it, uh, but it's gone. So whatever, going to deal with that. So, but I recorded it first and then I proceeded to start teaching through the different sections of First John. Well, now I'm mostly done with recording First John and I'm going back and recording the intro episode. So this will be a fun experiment as to whether or not this is the right way to do it, to sort of, you know, get into the, the flow of it and then come back and say, hey, now I, you know, I already thought that that was the point of this book, but now I'm really convinced of it because I've taught 10 episodes on it. And so... Anyways, I'm just inviting you all into my social experiment on these intro episodes, but either way, if you're new to this podcast, you will notice that this is a different kind of podcast. Um, no, you won't notice it because you're new. My point is, is if you're used to the Amos podcast, then you're, you know, you know, we kind of read a passage of scripture and then we talk about it and we leave with a so what. That's the pattern of what we mostly do on God on Tap. But when we started Amos, I said, hey, I think it's really, really important to do an intro episode because it helps orient us to what to think about, what to look for, to give us a, a backdrop, so to speak. And I, in the metaphor I always use when I'm talking about an introduction is it's like going to a city, a brand new city, especially like, let's say, a European city. So if you grow up in America, you're not always up to date with European history. So you're not going to know the history behind it. Like in America, chances are you know a little bit about Philadelphia. Like you would expect to see the bell and things like that or the Eagles Stadium. But let's say somebody dropped you off in Copenhagen or Stockholm or somewhere like that. Chances are you're not going to be up to date on all the history. And so a couple of different ways you can walk through the city. You can just go and learn. And the naturally curious will probably do that and still have a great time. Listen, you'll have a great time. You'll eat street food. Life will be good. But if you go with a tour guide, or you Rick Steves the crap out of that and take a book with you, you will get more depth and richness. You'll know where to move your eyes. You'll know where the significant things are. You'll be like, oh, I know that I should expect to see da-da-da-da-da. And so I will. Like, I will make sure I look that direction to understand what's going on. And so that's why we do these introduction episodes. They're a little bit different. Um, They probably feel a little bit like a fire hydrant, but I still argue that I think it's the best way to start any study of any book of the Bible. And so if you are new to studying the the Bible and you're tackling a new book, I always encourage people to get an introduction, even if it's just the intro from your study Bible, or it's a, you know, go to thebibleproject.com and watch their videos to orient you to what's going on in that book. It is going, it will pay off in dividends in terms of your study. And so that's my three and a half minute introduction to this is important, so hang with me. And then, of course, next week, or not even next week, tomorrow, we will jump into the meat of First John and go through it uh, as we as we do on this podcast. And so, all right, so for today, the way I wanted to do this is one of the ways that is a great way to do an introduction to any Bible study is to be like an investigative journalist. And investigative journalists or hosts or people that, 
their job is to get the data, they will ask the W questions. You know what I'm talking about? Who, what, when, where, and why? And that is a great tool to ask of any Bible study. Honestly, it's a great tool to ask of any passage of scripture as well, because it just forces you to ask these questions and systematically go through those passages. And so that's what I thought we would do for this one. I know in the Amos one, it was a lot of just history and then to orient you to time and space. Um, So I'm going to give you a quick little history in this one, but I think the who, what, when, where, and why might be a better way to organize our thoughts in this introduction. And so that's what we're going to do. So without further ado, let's hit the first one, who. Okay, so the book is obviously titled 1 John, which tells you most likely a guy named John wrote this book, and that's why it's named that, 1 John. It's named 1 John because it's a series of letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, are toward the end of your Bible. Um... And so who is this John? Well, the truth is, is is actually this letter is anonymous. And so what we mean by that is there are books of the Bible that say, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing to you such and such such. Like you'll see this pattern in the letter writing throughout the New Testament at times, or you'll see it in other books of the Bible where the author is stated. We saw this in Amos. Amos, a you know, shepherd from Tekoa, a, you know, blah, 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 blah. This actual book doesn't have an official author to it. Uh, and so then that leads everybody to go, okay, so how do we know? Well, there's a couple of ways that we know things like this. Um, one, we look at what the church and what history, who they said most likely wrote it. So that's one way that we look at evidence. Uh, and so the early church and folks around this uh, letter or you know whatever, this piece of writing often attributed to John. And then the second thing is there are unbelievable similarities between this book, the first John book, and also second and third John, as well as the gospel of John. And the gospel of John was most likely written by the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we get that from John 19, 26. And so that's one of the things that we do in ancient writing is we look at the writing samples of Letters that we know who wrote them or we're like very sure about who wrote them. And then we compare letters that we think were probably written by the same person. And then we do this comparative analysis. John has a very distinct way of writing. And um, we'll see that he writes in extremes. He loves black and white. He loves hot and cold. He has certain themes of life and, and uh, excuse me, light, love, also life. I mean, that actually is one of his themes. And so like light is a huge part of what John will talk about. So if you look at John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, blah, 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 and the light shone among us and darkness, da, 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 da. And then you move over to this book, First John, you'll see him say things like God is light. In him there is no darkness, those who are in him. And so the themes are so similar that it makes any honest analysis of this to say most likely this is who wrote this book. And so this is the John who, and there's a lot of different Johns in the Bible, right? There's John the Baptist. He was beheaded during Jesus's lifetime, so obviously he's not writing books. Um, And then there's uh, the evangelist John, which is a different John. This is the John who walked with Jesus. This is the John who Um, was beloved by him. This is the John that was standing at the cross and he says, woman, this is your son, Son, you know, son, this is your mother and, and all this. So this is a guy who is a, he has seen Jesus. He has walked with Jesus. He's seen Jesus's death and resurrection. And unlike the other disciples who were martyred for their faith, he lived a much longer life. And so this is an eyewitness person writing this letter. It's an incredible letter. Um, Most likely, uh, John is overseeing house churches in Ephesus. So that's kind of what he's doing at this point. 
Um, and so John is eyewitness. He is a bold black and white writer. He is uh, somebody who I think you would either love because you would love his tenacity in terms of like, it's this or that, nothing in between. Uh, or if you were, <laughs> if you were like, man, dude, take it down a notch, you could see how some of his writing is extreme. And we'll get into that as the book unfolds. So that's the who is John writing. What? Well, the what is typically we call this a letter. We call these the letters of John. Well, it's not, yeah, letter's a little bit of a misleading term here. And the reason why is a letter or the epistle, epistle is a fancy word for letter, if you look in the in your New Testament, when you get to the letters, like the letter to Philippi, the letter to the Thessaloniki, the letter the Thessalonians, the letter to Galatia, they follow a similar pattern, um, and you'll notice them because they have an introduction. I so and so so and so, you know, um, Paul, an apostle, da 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 da, to the church, and da 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 da, grace and peace be with you. Boom, body of letter, and then usually at the end, some sort of ending, you know, hey, say hello to so-and-so, like, say hello to, you know, greet Euodia and Syntyche. I know that they're feuding right now, but they're ministers with me, and so greet them. Or you look at the book of Romans, the whole chapter 16 is a is a long way of winning. This, this body of work, this, I'll call it a letter because I think people call it that, but it doesn't technically fit in that category. It's missing some of those things. Like I've already mentioned, we don't have a from John. So the question is then, well, then what is this? Um, a lot of scholars, and I tend to believe with them, think it's a homily. And a homily is a fancy term for a sermon, like an outline sermon. And it reads like that. It reads like a pastor who is John. John is so pastoral, who is addressing an issue in the church in Ephesus. So there's all these house churches in Ephesus, and it seems like there's an issue. And we'll talk about what that issue is. And he is he is writing a response, but he writes it more in a teaching homily way of doing it. And we'll see that as it unfolds. And so what you'll see is you'll see John being very pastoral and you'll see him using examples from Jesus's life. You'll see him using examples from the church and things like that to make his point. And so Listen, this is a this is a scalpel of separation, right? Because the reality is is very likely this body, this work, whatever you want to call it, this words on a piece of parchment. Um, well, actually it would have been papyrus at this time, but these words on papyrus that would have traveled around to the different houses probably moved around like a letter, which is why we call it a letter. So I don't think like if your pastor gets something and he's like, This letter from First John, you should be like, excuse me, hi, no, that's a homily. Um we're, we're doing really close divisions here, but I want to point that out because it does read a little differently than the other epistles in the New Testament. And I think that's worth noting because when, when Paul writes, not that Paul's not pastoral, Paul is so authoritative and he's always dealing with, it feels like case studies or explaining things. And it's, you get the sense that Paul is, an itinerant preacher who's going around and he's establishing churches and he's doing being a church planner and then his letters read as if oh this problem came up okay here's how the gospel satisfies that oh this problem came up okay this is how the gospel satisfies that with John you I hope you'll get a different feel that rather than hey I'm going to leave you and I'm not going to be here hopefully it reads as hey I'm your pastor and I'm concerned for you and so here is a theological understanding of why you don't need to fear these things that are happening to you and, and the things that are popping up around you. And so, um, 
Yeah, that's that's the what. The other thing that it is is it it feels a little bit uh, like a reminder of John thirteen through seventeen. So John thirteen through seventeen in the book of John is Jesus's upper room, this big discourse, and it feels like John, this writer, is taking those words from his gospel and he's expanding on them and and you and he's reusing so many themes here and so. If you find yourself being like, wow, I feel like I've heard this before, you have. These themes echo back and forth. And so if you've got the time and you're wanting to dive deep, it'd be a fun thing to go read John 13 through 17 and then pop over and read First John and see if you can spot the similarities and the parallels and all that fun stuff. Um, okay, so the who, it's John. The what, it's a homily that got circulated like a letter. So let's not split hairs here. The when. Okay, so... Paul, in the book of Acts, warns the Ephesian elders about wolves. He warns them about false teacher. And Timothy, who is going to be a pastor in this area as well, Paul writes a letter to Timothy, and specifically in 2 Timothy, which is one of Paul's sweetest letters, I feel like, in terms of you can tell Paul understands he's getting to the end of his life and he's passing on his wisdom to Timothy, who is a who is a young man who he's discipled. And so it's a more intimate letter, I feel like. Paul is reminding Timothy, who's a pastor in Ephesus, hey, the false teachers are there and this is how you deal with them. And so this letter most likely comes after that. And so it's really interesting if you were to piece together the New Testament, where this letter falls is You've got Jesus' life and ministry, his death and resurrection. He tells them, hey, I have to ascend on high, but stay in the upper room. Stay stay in the city until the helper comes to you, which is, of course, the Holy Spirit. Then we usher ourselves in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit comes among the people. We have the day of Pentecost. In the beginning, it's a very Jewish-centric Christian movement. And then through persecution, God spreads his message through, it goes out of Jerusalem, then it goes into Judea and Samaria, just like he said he would. And then the book of Acts, we see all these issues being dealt with. Well, then we see a terrorist named Saul, who is transformed on the road to Damascus into Paul, the apostle, and he then launches into the church planning ministry into the ends of the earth, into the areas outside of Jerusalem, outside of the Middle East. And so he goes into Europe, he goes into you know Turkey and all these places, and he's establishing churches. During this time, what is so beautiful is God chose to preserve almost like a traveling log of what's going on in the early church, which are, of course, Paul's letters. And so we'll see in the book of Acts, boom, church is planted. Like the church, So like let's use Acts 16 as an example. You've got the church at Philippi is established. You've got Lydia, a, a Gentile jailer, and a slave girl. Paul uses them, most unlikely of people, uh, to establish a church there. And then later you'll see the book of or the letter of Philippians. And so you see Paul is continuing to communicate with these churches. And so early church, lots and lots of persecution, sort of in these middle parts of Ephesus, there's a warning, hey, false teachers are coming. People are misrepresenting Jesus. People are misrepresenting what it means to be a Christian. I'm, hey, Ephesians, look alive. Hey, Timothy, who's going to be a pastor there, look alive. This book of 1 John, if we were to place it in the chronology, comes after those warnings. It is very obvious when you read this book, that those false teachers have come, they have wreaked havoc, and it sounds like they've sort of left, you know, the proximity of where they're at, and these Ephesian people are really rocked. They're one, and remember, I mean, Christianity is such an infant 
understanding at this point, it's such a baby church, right? And any any organization in the beginning is very fragile to disruption. It's very fragile to it. And so you've got these false teachers that have come in and they've said crazy things. And a lot of the things that they like to say is basically like, hey, Jesus saves you so you can sleep with whoever you want. Jesus saves you so the body doesn't really matter. So like, you know, eat, drink, and be merry because in the end you're saved. And Or, hey, Jesus has saved you so you can't even sin anymore. So don't worry about it. You just do whatever you want. And that's ludicrous. And so these false teachers have come in. Well, after they've left, you can imagine the Ephesian believers are wondering like, well, that sounds like Christianity. Is it though? I mean, is it? And so what you see here in this chronology is John, who remember, he saw Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He was in the upper room when Jesus talked about what it means to abide in him. He saw Jesus's crucifixion. He saw Jesus's resurrection. He saw Jesus's days on earth when he was done and talking about the commissioning of the church. He knew Peter. He knew these guys. He, I mean, if there was ever a time, if you wanted to pan pick somebody to come into your church after you've been rocked by false teachers and say, what in the world, where is due north? Like, where is, where is the right path that leads to life everlasting? If you could handpick somebody outside of the members of the Trinity themselves, it would be somebody like John. In fact, it might be John. I don't know if you could have a list of five people, if anybody would be higher than John. And and so, yeah, so John comes in and he is going to remind them in this letter, listen, in God there is light, so we don't walk in the darkness, and in God there is love, so we don't harm people. And you're going to see these themes over and over again, because part of the problem with these false teachers is they harmed people. And so he's going to talk about you will see, you will, you know, not he doesn't use this language, but this idea of like, you, they'll be known by their fruit of like, you can know if somebody's walking with Christ because they will be Christ-like and they will push you to be Christ-like. And so we're going to see these moral, social, and doctrinal, not tests, but I'm going to use that analogy of this idea of if you, there is a moral, social, and doctrinal component to the Christian faith. And John is going to remind them of that. And he does it as a pastor. It's so sweet. Like he doesn't shame them. And you'll see that he uses terms like beloved and little children. And it's just, it's like your grandfather who's weathered the storm of Christianity, who is best friends with Jesus comes in and he's like, he doesn't come in and he like flips over chairs. He's like, you morons, we told you what to believe. Timothy told you and Paul told you what is wrong with you. Like you don't see that in John. He's like little children, don't you know? And then there's these reminders over and over again. And so I'm getting like way off topic because I'm only supposed to be talking about when. But I just really love this book and I'm excited for us to jump in it. So that's part of the the win is the chronology is after the false teachers and John's going to come in and, and be the pastoral response and be the care that they need in, in light of those false teachers. So who? Big Johnny boy. What? It's a homily where he addresses the extremes of false teachers when at the end of or after false teachers have come in. So a little bit later in the New Testament period where I keep saying Ephesus to give you a place to understand is modern day Turkey. So if you were to get a globe and you were to look at modern day Turkey, that's where Ephesus is located. You can you can go and visit it. Well, I think you can. I don't actually know anything about visas or traveling to Turkey. But what I mean to say is the ancient city of Ephesus is still 
there. So if you could get to Turkey, I think you can. I'm fairly certain I can tell that you guys just lost some respect for my um, understanding of world politics and you should. So, uh, but yeah, modern day Turkey and then why. And I've touched on this throughout. So I've, I cheated. I know that I was supposed to do who, what, when, where, and why, but, oh, but like, oof, it's so good to talk about why he wrote this letter. And so, um, I'll just add to what I've already said in the in the win part of this is why he's writing these false teachers and all of that. You in John, um, it's interesting in the Gospel of John, he says, "I've written these things so that you might believe." And then in this letter, it's really sweet. He says, "I've written these things so that you may have assurance of eternal life." And, or he says, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so it's interesting. His gospel is very much written to an audience in order to give them the foundational understanding of belief in Jesus. And it's so beautifully written to accomplish that, right? You see the seven signs of miracles of Jesus. You see the seven I am statements of Jesus. You see um, there's poetry in motion throughout his letter. Jesus is this thing. And you know how he can prove it? Boom, miracle. And then you have the upper room and he's like, this is the teaching of Jesus to love, to wash your disciples' feet, to be united to each other as the father and the son are united. And then his crucifixion and his resurrection, it's a its a book you can tell a seasoned pastor has written who's looking back on his life. I don't think he was that far removed from the events. Like, I don't think he was like 105 and he was like, let me remember this old story about my friend Jesus. Like, I don't think that's what's happening. I think he's still very much within his wits. And I don't think it's written that much farther from the events, but I think he's writing from a pastoral point of view. Every one of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are writing from a particular perspective to a particular audience with a particular angle. They're allowed to do that. They're allowed to do that. So when people are like, oh, this all seems really weird and dispar- you know, like it seems like they negate each other or they're what? No. No, we put modern rules on ancient writing that the ancients would have never done. Nobody in the year 350 would have gotten a copy of the four evangelists and be like, guys, I don't know what to tell you, but this is insane because the way Matthew has arranged the teaching and the way Luke has arranged the teaching, guys, and he just like throws parchment all over the place. Like nobody was doing that. And I noticed I said parchment this time because I actually got it right. Parchment comes in the fourth century. Anywho, neither here nor there. My point being, this is this is what the gospel writers did. They wrote in order to, it's like any author does. They have a purpose in writing. They want you to know something. They want you to believe something. So John is writing as a pastoral dude who's saying, I have written so that you will believe. So he's giving you sort of the... Um, the substance of what of who Jesus is. He's telling you, I mean, it's why he even starts John 1 with this cosmic understanding of Jesus' connection to the Trinity and the eternity past. John's letter is one of the most profound pieces of literature I've ever studied. It's unbelievably beautiful. And he writes, so that you can place your faith in Jesus Christ as the one true risen Messiah. Then... In light of the pastoral difficulty of remaining in that faith, we get First John. So, of course, he uses the same themes because it's the same. Con- like, our faith in Jesus that saves us is the same faith that's going to sustain us. Our understanding in who Jesus is is also what brings us the assurance of our salvation because it's not necessarily our faith, like the strength of our faith that saves us. It's that we place our faith in the faithful one. Our faith in Jesus is what saves us. Jesus is the one that saves us. So our faith, whether strong or small, is, is I'm not saying it's inconsequential, but it's the faithfulness of Jesus that brings us to glory. 
And so that's why John is presenting Jesus to us as the one that we can put our faith in. And so in this letter, when we go from not just the object of our faith in in the gospel of John, but now in 1 John, in response to false teachers, it is a gentle reminder, this same God that we introduced you to, that you once believed, you can now believe that you will have eternal life. You will not fall away. You don't want to be snatched away. And there's this interplay in his letter. His use of verb tenses is so profound because he reminds them of blessings. And he uses the perfect tense, which is a tense that means it already happened in the past, but it has ongoing results. And he uses that in this letter to remind them, no, 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 no. Little children, I know those jerkwads came in here and really shook you guys up. I'm not mad at you. I'm not disappointed in you. And I'm not going to shame you because faith is a delicate thing. And who among us can claim perfect faith? No, no, no. I'm going to remind you of the object in which you placed your faith in the first place. And I'm going to remind you of the purity, the love, the light of that object, which is, of course, the Trinity. And of course, Jesus Christ as a member of that Trinity. And so that's the why, is to remind the recipients that what they place their faith in was appropriate. And because of that, they can have assurance. Believing that you are saved forever by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ does not make you presumptuous. It makes you, uh, it is your right as an heir of the one true king to say, since it's not about me anyways, I am trusting that Jesus will not fail me. And since he said that if I place my faith in him, I will have eternal life, I'm not presumptuous to claim that. It means I'm believing the one in which I place my faith. I am believing that Jesus isn't a liar. And so it's not arrogant to believe that you have eternal life. It's, it's your right. It's your right as a daughter or a son of the king. And so, yeah. All right. That's First John in a nutshell, the who. Big Johnny boy who hung out with Jesus. Remember, eyewitness, so important. When he talks about Jesus, he talks about somebody who was a bro-bro of Jesus, which is freaking crazy. What is he doing? It's a homily of sorts. It's very pastoral. I There's going to be sharpness in this letter. When he's sharp, it's toward the false teachers. And when he's kind, it's toward the believers. Very important pastoral model for us. Pastors should not be jerks unless we're going after false teachers. Okay? Who, what, when he's writing toward the end of the old, the New Testament period where false teachers have come in, wreaked some havoc in doing that, uh, where modern day Turkey supposedly can go there. I don't know. Don't ask me. And then the why is he is, he is wanting to remind them that the object of their faith has not changed and that the faithfulness of Jesus is always worth betting your life on. And so what's our big so what before we jump into this book? Uh, wow. This world is if you think that there were false teachers in the early church, uh, my word, look at 2019, right? And the thing that compounds 2019 is that it, it's you don't have to be near them, right? So the, the false teachers in Ephesus, there was a proximity. Like they literally physically walked into Ephesus, wreaked their havoc, and then physically walked out. In 2019, I can hop on Twitter, and any armchair theologian can say whatever they want. Um, I can hop on Instagram. I can, I can, the, the, you know, since the printing press, we can, good, goodness gracious, like we can 
I can read books that were written halfway across the world. I can read books that are a thousand years old. I can read books. Well, that's kind of excessive, but I can. I, I can. And um, because of the digiti- digitization of even these books. So the reality is, is I read old dead people that some of them wrote in the fourth century. I read people that have written in Brazil and that I can easily access their books today. So here's our so what. Is that in a, in a time when there's a lot of noise, and some of it's good, and it's a gift from God. I mean, hello, Beth Moore, right? I mean, there are people that I am so unbelievably grateful for out there. Hello, Russell Moore. Like, there are people that there's something about the Moors, like Lecrae Moore. I mean, there's just, there are Moors. <laughs> there are people that are also not last name Moore that are worth listening to. But, like, there is real gift in this digital age as well. But with any gift, there's the ability of humanity to pervert and disorient us. And so my advice to people when it comes to gaining your theology is, one, read old dead people whose books have stood the test of time. I think that's really important um, because the church universal has said, hey, this is valuable and we continue to preserve that. I still wouldn't I still wouldn't read them without being discerning. There are some things that the old dead guy said that's just straight trash. Uh, but what I'd say is, is the gift that John gives us is a reminder that our theology is grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. That if what we believe about God, like if you were if you were making statements about God and the Trinity were sitting over your shoulder listening in and they would give you the, you think I'm like, what? Like, I don't know about that. That's a gift to us to remind ourselves that God is alive and active, that the spirit dwelling inside of you is meant to be a safeguard to keep you from cuckooville. And so what I would say is the encouragement from the Gospel of John and then the encouragement we're going to get from 1 John is to continuously ground ourselves in the character, the attributes, the work, and the mission of God. And in doing so, that gives us a really good litmus test to, to weigh out false teaching. And so one just a freebie that we're going to talk about soon as we jump into 1 John, like one of the examples is, is listen, in Jesus, Jesus is always calling for purity. He is light. So if you have somebody saying, hey, I'm, I'm, a, G- I'm a Jesus follower, but I don't think sin's that big of a deal, that is incompatible with the character of Christ who died to vanquish sin, which is an enemy of life. And so these are the ways that we can begin to ground ourselves is to understand who Christ is, who the Trinity is, what they're like, what they're about, the things they value, the things they told us and preserve for us through the writings. And then we begin to test things against that. And then we trust the spirit inside of us and inside of our community to say, I don't know, that's a little fishy. And so that's my big so what is that I hope as we jump into 1 John that we will not only understand what the book's about, because I think that's really important, but we will also begin to build a framework for what God is like so that we can attest and approve all these things that are coming at us in this very noisy world that we live in. All right. Well, friends, I'm, I truly am stoked to jump into this book. Um, hopefully this was a helpful introduction. I know it was a little bit longer, but again, I still think it's really important. And uh, since you guys had to wait so long for first time, my plan is to release this episode and uh, the first one into the text today so that you guys can, yeah, to so that I can <laughs> reward your patience. So thanks for hanging with me. If nobody's told you today that they love you, I do. But way, way, way more importantly, God is crazy about you. Peace out, friends.